Welcome to A Look Ahead. We're delighted you've decided to join us. We study the Sabbath School lessons as prepared by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and this is a new series is entitled, In These Last Days, The Message of Hebrews. It seems like we recently had present truths in Deuteronomy, so we're talking about how these ancient books apply to us in our day. That's very interesting. This is lesson number one in that series for January 1, of 2022, entitled, The Letter to the Hebrews and to Us. And as usual, we'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Our wonderful Father, as usual, we gather around this table to talk about you and about what your word teaches us. Now, as we think about the people to whom this letter was addressed, we don't know a great deal about them, but we can read between the lines. Help us to understand the challenges they were facing as Paul was writing to them in this very important letter in the New Testament. May we understand it as you wish us to, as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this lesson, our first in the series, will focus on the people to whom the book of Hebrews was written. No one is completely sure of who they were. However, we have some uh, hints Some have suggested that the book of Hebrews was written to a group of young students who were trying to learn how to become an apostle. Notice these particular words. Jim? The book of Hebrews was initially read and received by the early Christian church as a letter from the Apostle Paul. Paul's authority, excuse me, Paul's authorship of Hebrews is indicated by the inclusion of Hebrews among Pauline epistles of the Greek manuscripts in the earliest extent manuscripts dating to around 200 AD. Hebrews is placed right after the epistle of Paul to the Romans. Today we find Hebrews right before the general epistles of the New Testament, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude from the Bible study guide. Okay, so... What we're seeing here is that back in the early days, when they were lining the books up, remember, in, way back there they had scrolls. They didn't have a book as we have it. But when they were lining the books up and they were and they were listing the names, they put Hebrews right after Romans. So that's one hint. Okay, Hebrews does not begin. Here's another. Hebrews does not begin the way we normally expect a letter to begin. Numerous examples could be given from Paul's letters, how he started out by addressing a given church or a given individual, and then proceeded to what he had to say. There are um, none of those kinds of introductions in the book of Hebrews. However, at the end of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, we find some suggestions that might give us some clues, and we'll look at those a little bit later. Question. Yes. So, why was Hebrews placed after Romans do I remember that they went by length of the book? That or was maybe weight of the yes. manuscript. But in, in the original, what we're implying Greek. here is that that they're lining up the books of Paul before they, mm-hmm. yeah, and they they're by length. Yes, that's correct. And then, of course, then we have to deal with Revelation, which is twenty. Well, no, but this that's, is but that's yeah. by John. Yeah, that's by a different author. So oh, we're talking we're about, talking about, about lining up the books of oh, Paul, and then Paul. yeah, right, right, okay. Yeah. There are three things emphasized in this lesson. One, the genre of Hebrews. 
two, the audience of Hebrews, and three, the last days in which the readers of Hebrews were lived, were, were and are living. So Paul says, I'm writing to you in these last days, and we're gonna, we need to talk about what that implies. Was the book of Hebrews an ordinary letter with the greetings at the beginning, left off? Or was it a sermon which was recorded and sent to the churches in the form of a letter? Carrie? Paul characterizes his work as a, quote, word of exhortation, as Hebrews 13.22, which is best understood as an oral discourse. Similarly, during their first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas on Sabbath attend a synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia. The synagogue leaders ask Paul and Barnabas if they have, quote, any word of exhortation for the people, unquote. Acts 13.15, New Revised Standard Version. Paul stands up and delivers the evangelistic synagogue sermon recorded in Acts 13.16-41. through 41. That's from the Adult Teacher Sabbath School Bible Study Guide. Okay, so what's the implications of that statement? He's saying, because he calls it a word of exhortation, they're saying, in other words, that's a, that's a word that's sometimes used to refer to a sermon. So, that's another hint that maybe this was originally or, originally or only a sermon that was recorded. So, a lecture? A lecture, perhaps. But at the end, he, at the end, he talks about them being some distance away. So, it probably wasn't a lecture, uh, personally, in person. Mm -hmm. Another suggestion hinting at the idea that he was a sermon is the fact that Paul addressed his audience in the first person pearl. So, if you're talking to a group of people, you'd say, what? We, us, our, and there's a very distinct way of doing that in the original Greek. Paul was clearly trying to identify with his audience while still asserting his authority and directing them. Another suggestion this was originally a sermon is as follows. Sally? Third, there are several references to speaking and hearing rather than to writing and reading, with elsewhere characterized, which elsewhere characterize Paul's compositions. Uh... Consider. Yes. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. I think that's funny. Yes. <laughs> A lot of us have become dull of hearing. Yes. Even though we speak in this way, Hebrews 6, 9. Now the main point in what we are saying is this, and uh, Hebrews 8, 1. And what more should I say? <laughs> so you can see here that uh, this is another hint that maybe he's preaching and not just writing a letter because he's talking about hearing mm -hmm. and saying and speaking and so forth. So this is a third possible suggestion. Another suggestion that this might have originally been a sermon is the way Paul used exposition and exhortation all through the book. Paul discussed some issues and then talked to his audience about how they should have responded and what they should have done. Again from the Teacher's Bible Study Guide, in summary, if one looks at Hebrews as a, quote, word of exhortation, end quote, then the conclusion seems inescapable. Hebrews was designed, at least originally, as a sermon. Other elements within the letter that give weight to this conclusion are, number one, the distinctive use of the first-person plural pronoun. 
which you already mentioned. We've already mentioned. So this is a in our Bible study guide. This is a summary. Okay. Yeah. Number two, the references to hearing and speaking. Number three, the alternation between exposition and exhortation. And number four, the manner in which Paul introduces themes subtly and later on develops them. So these are all hints about the fact this could be a possible sermon. Well, there are other sermons in the Bible. Probably the most famous one that we everybody should think of almost immediately is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. to However, if you compare Matthew's writing with Luke's writing, and they follow along the sequence pretty much together, and, and Mark does some too, it's, it sort of implies, you can't say this for sure, it sort of implies that Matthew, when writing the Sermon on the Mount, it wasn't actually one continuous sermon, it was main points that he picked up from several sermons. Maybe that's a possibility. But, of course, it's also very possible that Jesus, when he had an audience gathered for that major sermon, this was given just about the time he was appointing his first, uh, well, he was actually naming his first disciples, uh, that he hit points. And so this was a sermon, but it was, it in turn was summary of things that he had said before and other sermons. So there's possibility there. Um, and we also know about the sermon that Stephen gave. It's recorded in Acts 7. And I don't know how good would we be at giving a sermon if we realized there was a very good chance that uh, we would die at the end of our sermon. Just before he was murdered by stoning, you remember the story. However, it is quite possible that the book of Hebrews was originally a single longer sermon. And maybe the earliest complete Christian sermon that we have available to us. And what do we see in this sermon? Well, I would say that um, if this was the earliest sermon, it gets pretty complicated <laughs> for beginners. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it still could be true. Uh, the letter seems to be addressed to Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, since he made no distinction in this sermon. It is addressed to Christians who, after having accepted the Christian message, were beginning to experience difficulties. Has that ever happened before? Some were shamed and persecuted, Hebrews 10, 32-34. Others had financial problems, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Others apparently were just tired and began to question the real value of their faith, Hebrews 3, 12-13. Do any of these problems sound familiar to you? And Paul's purpose, of course, was to encourage people and challenge them to continue practicing their Christianity and sharing it with others. In general, those people to whom he was speaking apparently had a wonderful experience at the time of their initial conversion. Charles? Hebrews uh, 3, no, I'm two, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. How then shall we escape if we pay no attention to such a great salvation? The Lord himself first announced this salvation, and those who heard him proved to us that it is true. I'm going to interrupt there for a second. We're going to talk about this some more a little bit later, but what would you preach about if to try to convince pagan people who had no experience of Christianity, you show up in their town, and you're preaching, and you say, I want to convince you, I want, to, I want you to see that this Christianity is superior to your pagan religion. What would you talk about? 
hope. The, res- the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ obviously is the main point. Yes, and are there miracles that were performed? Just as starters, I. So we'll 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 talk about it more again a little bit here. Go ahead. At the same time, God added His witness to theirs by performing all kinds of miracles and wonders, and by distributing the gifts of Holy Spirit according to His will. American Bible Society, the Good News Translation. Okay, so what would you say if someone showed up? that you had never seen before, stranger, obviously not from your area, and said, let me tell you about multiple people that have risen from the dead. Would you say, hmm? <laughs> That's what we say today when someone says things like that. We are skeptical. Skeptical. And look at, I mean, if you talk about casting out demons, you talk about, you know, healing leprosy. And those days, those things were almost as amazing as raising someone from the dead. Well, this passage implies that, uh, that the audience of Hebrews had not heard Jesus himself preach. So he says, we're going to talk to you about what someone else saw. In fact, had Paul ever seen Jesus? No. No. He, except in vision. Right. Later he talks about that. But you see, Paul had in quote-unquote advantage over us. Uh, the man was absolutely, totally against this nonsense called Christianity. Yeah. And he turns around and dies for it. Yeah. So something must have happened. Yeah. For, for sure. A yes. paradigm shift there yeah. in right. Paul's right. life. Right. Yeah, it's like thinking about if you've got two big armies fighting each other and all of a sudden a general from the one army you know, it defects to the other side. I mean, you know, it's one thing if the general dies, he, that's a big loss. But if he defects to the other side, wow. I call treason? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um. Is it called treason when it's over a religious? No, uh, I'm just, I'm sorry. he was using the, the yeah. general yeah. and the army's thing. Yeah. But, uh, Paul had looked at what the evidence from Two different par- uh, yeah. points of view, mm-hmm. which is we t- like a bench at a paradigm. Yeah. It's a paradigm shift. That, yeah. uh, he but, didn't have to throw the stories out. Yeah. In fact, I, I think about my experience when I first was able to get into Graham Maxwell's class back in mm-hmm. the seventies, yeah. uh, and about because I'd read the Great Controversy and uh, Chapter Twenty Nine was so impactful with me. And then he referred to the great controversy, and man, I was, <laughs> I was hooked. Yeah. It, it was just, because it was so logical, you know, yeah. I, it, 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 but, yeah. It's, it's, uh. Well, he implies that these people have originally received the gospel from some other evangelist, and, um, so now he's speaking to them. More than that, there was a lot of experiential evidence that Christianity had real power. People had been raised from the dead. We've talked about that. They had been healed from terrible diseases. We've talked about that. Demons had been cast out, etc. So those are the, those are probably the things that would be the most sort of impressive if you knew nothing about the whole business. You know, look, to this day, I mean now, even now, we don't hear about it so much and we don't like to talk about, but miracles are happening that cannot be explained by science. Yeah. Period. Yes. 
Yes, you know, absolutely. You turn on Google Christian Prince, a Saudi Arabian prince who becomes a Christian, and uh, it, it's unbelievable. You can just go on Christian Prince, and he perhaps is doing much more oh, yeah. <laughs> than we would ever yeah. see. One of the most remarkable pieces of evidence that these those Christians were experiencing miraculous things was the fact that they could speak fluently and clearly in any language in which they needed to speak. And I quote, this is Ellen White, Acts of the Apostles, page 39, paragraph 2. This miraculous gift of speaking in other languages at and after Pentecost was a strong evidence to the world that their commission bore the signet of heaven. I mean, imagine you, and there were lots of little dialects here and there, and here's some stranger shows up and he speaks your dialect perfectly. And you're saying, you don't look like me. I don't remember you being here. How, <laughs> How did you that happen? This? From this time, and notice what it says about Pentecost. From this time forth, the language of the disciples was pure, simple, and accurate, whether they spoke in their native tongue or in a foreign language. Wow. If That's we only, the apostles. if we can ask the apostles, I mentioned that earlier. Paul used examples from the Old Testament to warn his audience not to turn away from God. Jim, are you ready for Hebrews 12? (laughs) Hebrews 12, verses 25 to 29. Be careful, then, and you do not refuse to hear him who speaks. Those who refuse to hear the one who gave the divine message on earth did not escape. How much less shall we escape than if we turn away from the whole from the one who speaks from heaven. His voice, the voice of Christ, shook the earth as it w- at that time, but now he has, he has promised, I will once more shake not only the earth, but heaven as well. The words once more plainly show that the created things shall be shaken and removed, so that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Let us be thankful then, because we received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be grateful and worship God in a way that will please Him with reverence and awe, because our God is indeed a destroying fire. Good News Bible. Now, does that sound like an appealing (laughs) message? Maybe until the last line. Yeah. Yeah. What's with that last line? Now, you know, if you, if you're used to, if the pagan, think about the Greek and, and Roman gods. They were, I mean, there were gods of the ocean, drowning people, there were gods of all, there were gods of fire, there were gods of all kinds of things, so maybe this wasn't such a strange message to them. Um, so if we think of it, you know, the sun gives us all our energy, but if we have too much of it, it becomes a fire. Mm-hmm. If we if we were to get too close to it, we would be a we'd mm-hmm. be consumed. But without it, we would die of lack of energy. What is it? Uh, Isaiah thirty three fourteen. The, who can dwell in the everlasting burnings? Who can yeah. the ever the, the burning fire? Uh, the righteous yeah. can do so. So uh, the, that's a the destroying the fire really is a metaphor of something. We yeah. haven't unpacked it really. Well, as you think of the conversion of Saul who later became Paul on the road to Damascus, or the conversion of 3,000 people at Pentecost. 
And the question I, I raise about that is, there are no big bodies of water anywhere near Jerusalem. They took all these guys and baptized them. How, where, did they all march down to the Jordan? How did they do that? Yeah, I hope they didn't do sprinkling. <laughs> well, there's a, one other possibility, but I don't know if this is possible. We just don't have enough information. The Jews had these ceremonial baths called mikvah. And uh, maybe they, you know, you you could baptize a few people at a time, but you'd have to have hundreds of mikvah around Jerusalem. So anyway, I don't know. That's one of the questions I always raised in my mind. Do you wish that you had had some kind of almost miraculous conversion like that? As you think back on your own conversion, what do you think? You think about, if you think about the pagan societies in which those Christians were uh, were trying to practice their Christianity, it should be obvious that their behavior had changed, to obviously to the people around them. They had set up a kind of boundary between themselves and their associates. Unfortunately, as we know, for example, the Jews with their barriers against Gentiles, this made it more difficult for them to reach out to those in the community. And we can stop and talk about our experiences. Adventists with our sort of queer habits, as some would, would think, does that set up a boundary between us and people we're trying to win to the, to the truth? It's, it, it does. Yeah. Um, the people in the community felt... Do we call them an Adventist ghetto? Sometimes. <laughs> the people in the community felt judged by them. Hebrews 10 and 13 suggest that many of those young Christians had suffered serious persecution, even losing almost all their possessions. So here are young people, presumably at least new converts, and Paul is apparently speaking to them with the message of saying, you know, please, you know, become serious, do what I'm doing, go out and preach, da-da-da-da. Yeah. Think about the experience of Paul himself and all that he suffered. And this is, I just have to read this 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, 21 to 29 passage. Um, I am ashamed to admit, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians, I am ashamed to admit that we were too timid to do these things. He's talking about what these other people had were trying to refuse his message. But if anyone dares to boast about something, I'm talking like a fool. I will be just as daring. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they uh, Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they Christ's servants? I sound like a madman, but I'm a better servant than they are. I have worked much harder. I have been in prison more times. I have been whipped much more. I have been near death more often, five times. Now, this is back before any of the shipwrecks or any of those things that we know about. This is This happened before any of those stuff. Five times I was given the 39 lashes, lashes by the Jews. Three times I was whipped by the Romans. And once I was stoned, now that happened very early in his experience, so that may be as one we do know about. I have been in three shipwrecks. That's not the one we know about. And once I spent 24 hours in the water. 
In my many travels I have been in danger from floods and from robbers and dangers from fellow Jews and from Gentiles. There have been dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilds, dangers on the high seas, and dangers from false friends. There has been work and toil. Often I have gone without sleep. I have been hungry and thirsty. I have often been without enough food, shelter, or clothing. And not to mention other things, every day I am under the pressure of my concern for all the churches. When someone is weak, then I feel weak too. When someone is led into sin, I am filled with distress. And he was not on salary. And he was not on salary. You're exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, for the self-supporting ministry. Self-supporting ministry. Yep. For Christians to suffer should not be a surprise. Think of the story of Moses. Think about his experience. And of other Christians noted, noted in 1 Peter 4, 14 to 16. I don't know where... Maybe we could look at... Uh, have time to look at this one from, from Moses. Hebrews 11. It was faith that made Moses, when he had grown up, refuse to be called the son of the king's daughter. He preferred to suffer with God's people rather than to enjoy sin for a little while. He reckoned that to suffer scorn for the Messiah was worth far more than all the treasures of Egypt, for he kept his eyes on the future reward. And what was the result for him? He entered, he entered the, the better Canaan, right? Okay. To better get an overall picture of what happened, consider these words. Carrie? To bear the reproach of Christ simply meant to identify oneself with Christ and endure the shame and abuse that this association implied. Public animosity against Christians was the result of their distinctive religious commitments. People can get offended by religious practices that they don't understand or by people whose lifestyle and morals can make others feel guilty or shamed. By the middle of the first century A.D., Tacitus considered Christians to be, quote, hatred against mankind. Be guilty of hatred against Oh, yes, I missed that. Sorry. So this is a book by a gentleman, Broadrib, The Complete Works of Tacitus. So considering all of these those issues, why do you suppose some of the Christians seem to be failing or, or falling into a kind of malaise? Sally? You read a couple of those passages for you and then maybe for us and then uh, maybe Gordon can read a couple. Hebrews 2.18 And now he can help those who are tempted because he himself was tempted and suffered. Good news, Bible. Um, Go ahead, read the next one. Okay, Hebrews 3.12 and 13. My fellow believers, be careful that no one among you has a heart so evil and unbelieving as to turn away from the living God. Instead, in order that none of us be deceived by sin and become stubborn, you must help one another every day as long as the word today in the scripture applies to us. Good news, Bible. Okay, Gordon. Hebrews 4.15. Our high priest is not one who can feel <clears throat> who cannot. Sin one who cannot feel sympathy for our weaknesses. On the contrary, we have a high priest who was tempted in every way that we are, but did not sin. Good News Bible. And Hebrews 10.25, Let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing. Instead, let us encourage one another all the more, since you see that the day of the Lord is coming near. 
Okay, so he gave some very specific instructions. He said, these are things that you need to do. And the ultimate example, with a capital E, of going through unbelievable difficulties and being treated so poorly would be the example of Christ himself. Think of what he went through, how he put up with so much hatred from the sinners. So do not let yourselves become discouraged and give up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, and uh, verse 12, Lift up your tired hands then, and strengthen your trembling knees. Verse 13, Keep walking on the straight paths, so that the lame foot may not be disabled, but instead be healed. It is often the case when people go through exciting times and get all worked up for one reason or another, that later there was a letdown. Christian evangelists have found that these are times when the devil comes with a counterattack. Consider the case of Elijah. And this probably is a familiar story to all of you, but let me just review parts of it. First Kings 19, 1-4, and you remember, the beginning of that story was that experience up at the uh, top of Mount Carmel, and where Elijah was the only one that could get the fire to go and consume the sacrifice and the stones and the water and the, leaving a black hole in the ground. And then he, what did he do? And then he, he ran. He killed 850 yeah. Well, I, I, I don't think he could have done that himself only. He had some help, but man. Yeah. 850 prophets of Baal. There's no record that the Yahweh or praised him for accomplishing that. But God did take him to heaven soon after. That's, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, so this is the response. Well, he really did, my understanding, he didn't really understand who God was until he, after that experience at, at Mount Horeb or Sinai. He, he, well, he, he had a pretty incredible experience with God. I mean, he, he, here's this man from a country hick, really, we would think of him as, with very simple, funny clothes on. He just marches right into the king's palace yeah. and says, there's not going to be any rain until I say so. And everybody's like, huh? And where did that guy go? <laughs> so anyway, here's the response from King Ahab and his one. Remember that Jezebel came with her, all these prophets, basically, her, her idea was he, she was going to evangelize Israel for her God, for Baal, and, and for Astra. Right. That's what she was there to do. She was a foreign missionary. Yes. <laughs> yikes. Yeah, yikes, that's right. King Ahab told his wife Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had put all the prophets of Baal to death. She sent a message to Elijah, May the God strike me dead if, if by this time tomorrow I don't do the same thing to you that you did to the prophets. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He took his servant and went to Beersheba in Judah. Now, he's been, Elijah's been working in the northern kingdom of Israel. So now he's gone down to the far southern part of the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is maybe 50 miles or 70 miles or something like that. I don't know exactly that is. Leaving the servant there, Elijah walked a whole day into the wilderness. Now he's entering the Sinai Desert. He stopped and sat down in the shade of a tree and wished he would die. It's too much, Lord, he prayed. Take away my life that I might as well be dead. It's from our Good News Bible again. And then, 
Jim, you want to read us that comment from Ellen White? But a reaction such as frequently follows high faith and glorious success was pressing upon Elijah. He feared that the reformation begun on on Carmel might not be lasting. The depression seized him, and he had exalted in Pisgah's top. Excuse me, had exalted to Pisgah's top. Now he was in the valley, while under the inspiration of the Almighty, he had stood the severest trial of faith. But in that time of discouragement, with Jezebel's threat sounding in his ears, and Satan still apparently prevailing to the plotting of this wicked woman, he lost his hold on God. He had been exalted above measure, and the reaction was tremendous. Forgetting God, Elijah fled on and on until he found himself in a dreary waste alone. Ellen White, Prophets and Kings, page 161 and 162. So what did God do for Elijah? Remember that God had plans soon to take him, take Elijah to heaven in a fiery chariot. Now we, we, we need to stop and remember that. God knew what he's planning to do. Yes, go ahead, Gordon. So I once had someone suggest to me that Elijah was depressed, and I, I didn't think it because I hadn't read this quite that way before, but this is depression. Yes, yeah. Sir. Is yeah. deep depression. Lord, I want to die. Yeah. Take my life. It's not worth going on. Yeah. And that's sad because if he had followed up maybe with immediately going out to people and say, look, let's, you know, who knows, man, maybe they were so far gone he couldn't help anyway, but just, Anyway. He was so scared of this woman. Yeah. I mean, he saw the great power of the Lord, the fire coming down from heaven. Then he's scared of this woman. Yeah. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Yeah, after killing 850 <laughs> of her prophets. He probably got some help, but then, you know, uh, but he saw the magnificent uh, manifestation of God's power. Yeah. And she threatens him, he wants to die. <laughs> Women can be scary. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Hit him, Sally. Hit him. <laughs> okay. Oh. First Kings 19, 5 to 18. Is that my? No, that's... Charles, is that yours? My turn, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Go ahead, Carrie. Uh, reading from First Kings 19, 5 through 18. He lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said, Wake up and eat. He looked round and saw a loaf of bread and a jar of water near his head. He ate and drank and lay down again. The Lord's angel returned and woke him up a second time saying, Get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. Elijah got up, ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to walk 40 days to Sinai, the holy mountain. So is this some special kind of manna here? No, <laughs> that was just bread. <laughs> no, Ezekiel bread. Yeah. He went into a cave to spend the night. Suddenly the Lord spoke to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? He answered, Lord God Almighty, I have always served you, you alone, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. Go out and stand before me on top of the mountain, the Lord said to him. Then the Lord passed by and sent a furious wind that split the hills and shattered the rocks, but the Lord was not in the wind. 
Okay, I'm going to interrupt for a second. How strong a wind do you have to have to split rocks? Pretty good. So is that a tornado, hurricane, or even more? More Wow. And we wonder why he was afraid. (laughs) Yeah, okay. The wind stopped blowing, and then there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And try to imagine, I'm sorry for interrupting again, but try to imagine Elijah saying, Fire! Yes! The Lord's come back! (laughs) And after the fire, there was the soft whisper of a voice. When Elijah heard it, he covered his face with his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. A voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? (laughs) He answered, Lord God Almighty, I have always served you, you alone, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed all your prophets. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. The Lord said, Return to the wilderness near Damascus, then enter the city and anoint Hazael as king of Syria. Anoint Jehu son of Nimshi as king of Israel and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abdul-Meholah to succeed you as a prophet. Anyone who escapes being put to death by Hazael will be killed by Jehu and anyone who escapes Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will leave 7,000 people alive in Israel, all of those who are loyal to me and have not vowed to Baal or kissed his idol. Good news, Bible. What do you suppose it means anyone who is not killed by Hazael will be killed by Jehu and anyone who is not killed by Jehu will be killed by Elisha? Well, I guess they got tired somewhere along the line and passed it on. Well, I mean, Elisha, we don't know anything about him killing people. Although, you know... Well, the, the she-bears came the she-bears, out and, yeah. uh, and ripped the kids to pieces. Okay. Sally, you want to take so, off that next story there? Before you go on, so one time after we finished uh, reading or going through the Bible book by book, we asked each other, well, what's your, quote, favorite story of, of the Bible? And this was the one that, that I came up with. You know, the... Yeah. the Earthquake, fire, wind, and then the still small voice of reason of God. Yeah. Very good. The story of God's dealing with Elijah after Carmel is fascinating because it shows the tender care and wisdom which God ministers to us who are under distress and who struggle to regain faith. God did several things for Elijah. First, he cared for his physical needs, food, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He provided food and let him rest. Then in the cave, he kindly reproved him. What are you doing here, Elijah? First Kings 19.9. And helped him gain a deeper understanding of how he works and fulfills his purposes. God was not in the wind, the earthquake or the fire, but in a small voice. Then God gave Elijah a work to do and reassured him. Yeah, that's from our Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for Wednesday, December 29. What did God do for Elijah? What might he do for us? Paul emphasized several things. Let's think about how God can individually impact our lives. One, Christians were and are to care for the physical needs of fellow believers. And we see a certain amount of this, but 
if you read the New Testament carefully, there's an awful lot of, and, and you could, well, I mean, we know that back at, after Pentecost, they were, you know, everybody was selling their stuff and supporting everybody and so forth. I mean, uh, that's, that's, that's a pretty amazing situation. Socialistic system. Yeah. Should we be doing that? Well, that's the question. Two, they were, are not to be gradually, not to gradually drift away, developing an evil heart of unbelief. Hebrews 3.12. Three, their faith was, is to go by remembering the importance of consistent attendance at church meetings. Hebrews 10.25. That's a favorite verse to encourage us to attend our regular Sabbath services, which is a, a good thing to do. One of the interesting challenges in understanding Paul's writing is found in Hebrews 1 verse 2. If Paul was inspired by God, why would he call the people in his day as living in these last days? Paul went on later in the book of in Hebrews 9, 26 to 28, 10, 25, 20, 36 to 38, and 12, 25 to 28, to suggest that God would return soon and there would not be long delay. God's promises were about to be fulfilled, he said. Hebrews 10, 36 to 38. However, that was almost 2,000 years ago. Was Paul wrong? Was God's inspiration wrong? Well, perhaps uh, we who live after Paul have failed, not only the Lord, also him, because perhaps during his time, more people knew about Christ than today in ratio. Um, well, that's an interesting so idea. So if, if his zeal was continued, um, by now perhaps it would be home. Just a thought. Several times Paul uses the example of the Hebrews wandering in the desert as a comparison with his audience to whom he was speaking. We know that on several occasions the children of Israel were led into fertility cult worship, dancing and sexual practices, which ultimately led to thousands of people dying. Do you remember how many it says in Numbers died as a result of their getting involved in these on two separate occasions? Was it 30,000? Well, it mentions 27,000 for sure. So, and Paul understood well that 3,000 on one occasion and 24,000 on another occasion. And Paul understood well that the environment in which his Christian friends were living was full of immorality and covetousness. Their only safety was to follow the guidance of their teachers and particularly to fix their eyes on Jesus. Just a little note to mention about that. That famous temple of Diana or in, in Hebrew or Aphrodite in, in Ephesus, if you were a criminal and you escaped there, you were safe. They, no, nobody could be persecuted for their crimes that they were there. And of course they were, yeah, you know, both male and female prostitutes that we would call them prostitutes, uh, temple virgins, the so-called virgins that were there, and just incredible things going on there. So how is that, being safe in the temple of Aphrodite, how is that different from the cities of refuge? Is it that the cities of refuge, you got there, you, and then you had a, a fair, quote, fair trial? Right, exactly. And if you were a criminal, you were dealt with. In this situation, in Aphrodite's place, if you... The, these these criminals just lived there, stayed there. 
so long as they were there, nobody could deal with deal with them. So, notice these words in Hebrews twelve one through four. From, as for, from the Good News Bible. Good News Bible, yes. As, as go ahead. As for us, we have this large crowd of witnesses around us. And that's, of course, referring to what he's just been talking about in Hebrews 11. So then, let us rid ourselves of everything that gets in the way and of the sin which holds on to us so tightly. And let us run with determination the race that lies before us. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on whom our faith depends, from beginning to end. He did not give up because of the cross. On the contrary, because of the joy that was waiting for him, he thought nothing of the disgrace of dying on the cross, and he is now seated at the right hand of God's throne. Let me interrupt for just a second. Because of our very modern ideas about things, we always cover Jesus, at least partly. He was completely nude, naked, while hanging on that cross. Yeah. Part of the reason for that it was to the whole purpose of this because it, these were supposed to be people who have committed treason and the Roman government was determined to make them as much a, a, a abhorred thing as possible. So, you know, we just need to... They, they did everything they possibly could to shame... Humiliate uh, them. Humiliate them, yes. Go ahead. Verse 3. Think of what he went through, how he put up with so much hatred from sinners. So do not let yourselves become discouraged and give up. For in your struggle against sin, you have not yet had to pers- had to resist to the point of being killed. Wow. So, and that suggests that some were killed. Of course, and Paul himself ultimately was, wasn't he? Of course, with our understanding of the nature of man and the state of the dead, it would be correct to say that as soon as someone passes away and closes his or her eyes in death, the next thing she or he will see will be the second coming of Jesus. So for him, her, it would be the last days. Okay? So why were the early Christians persecuted? Charles? Christians adopted a lifestyle that would have been considered antisocial and even subversive. Loyalty to the gods expressed in pious attention, attendance of the sacrifices and the like was viewed as a symbol for loyalty to the state, authorities, friends and family. Worship of the deities was something of a symbol for one's dedication to the relationships that kept society stable and prosperous. By abstaining from the former Christians, like the Jews, were regarded with suspicion and potential violators of the laws and as subversive elements within the empire. So, they were not looked on in friendly terms, were they? This was pagan Rome. Yeah. Which turned papal Rome and things didn't improve. Yeah. Is it possible to be different, quote-unquote, because of our Christian beliefs and understanding and not be considered separate or strange by the world? How do you how do you walk that very careful line? Are there similarities between the experiences of these people to whom Paul was preaching and the people living in our day and the period known as the Laodicean dispensation? 
Do you remember the Laodicean dispensation? Let me just read a little bit of that. I think we've got a few extra minutes. Um, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, This is the message from the Amen, the faithful and true witness, who is the origin of all that God has created. Now this is John writing about 30 years, 30 or 40 years after Paul had written his letter. Or we're his, reading from Revelation Paul, 3, starting and we're reading from Revelation 3, starting with verse 14. I know what you have, this is God speaking through, through John, I know what you have done, I know that you are neither cold nor hot, how I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And the actual verb in Greek says vomit. But they didn't, they thought that was a little bit too harsh. You say, I am rich and well off, I have all I need, but you do not know how miserable and pitiful, pitiful you are. You are poor and naked and blind. I advise you then to buy gold from me, pure gold, in order to be rich. Buy also white clothing to dress yourself and cover up your shameful nakedness, but also some ointment to put on your eyes so that you may see. Buy also some ointment. I rebuke and punish all whom I love. Be in earnest then and turn from your sins. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears the, my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat in and eat with them and they with, eat with them and they with me. To those who win the victory, I will give the right to sit beside me on my throne, just as I have been victorious and now sit by my, by my father in his throne. How do you suppose that message impacted the people in his day and in the, in, in the city of Laodicea and us. It's interesting to notice that number, number 13, which Paul referred to with the ascending in of the 12 spies into Canaan, could give one a very wrong impression if one were to read only numbers 13, especially if it read superficially. Notice that there were obvious contradictions in the report of the 10 spies. Now, Paul is contrasting things that happened to those people back in their day to the people in, in, in Christ's day, in, in his day. Numbers 13, 23. Is it me? <clears throat> they came to the valley of Eskol. Eskol, yeah. And there they cut off the branch which had one bunch of grapes on it so heavy that it took two men to carry it on a pole between them. They also brought back some pomegranates and figs. Okay, now let's look at that for a second. You remember that the... Well, maybe you should go ahead and read the next couple of verses there. Numbers 13, 27, 28. They said to Moses, We explored the land and found it to be rich and fertile. And here is some of its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful. Their cities are very large and well fortified. Even worse, we saw the descendants of the giants there. Dropping down to verse 32. So they spread the false. So they spread the false report among the Israelites about the land they had explored. They said, this must be politically correct people. They said, the land does not even produce enough to feed the people who live there. Now I want to, I want to interrupt there. I mean, that is patently Lie. A lie. 
I mean, here they are carrying this bunch of grapes that's so big, it, it has to be carried on a pole between two of them. They also have pomegranates and dates and so forth. And there's giants there, and there's not enough food to keep them alive. Hmm. Come on, I mean. So that two people carrying the pole with the grapes is the symbol of Israeli tourism today, yes. isn't it? Even today, yes. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very a very nice... It's it's a nice little picture. And one bunch only. Yeah. From one bunch. Two yes. people to carry this. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> Everyone was we saw was very tall. And we even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. We felt as small as grasshoppers, and that is how we must have looked to them. Goodness, Bible. I once heard a, summer, a sermon about this story, and it was entitled... Uh, was he? Um, something about the grasshoppers anyway. And how do you, do you do you ever feel like a grasshopper or something like that? Okay, but who were the ones that suggested that they should send spies into Canaan? Now let's go back and now Paul and now I'm sorry Moses is reviewing the story in the book of Deuteronomy and notice what he says at this point. When we reach Kadesh Barnea, I said, you have now come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God, the God of ancestors, is giving us. And what had God promised them? He would go in before them. He would fight for them. He would take care of everything, right? Look, there it is. Go and occupy it as he commanded. Do not hesitate or be afraid. But you came to me, this is Moses speaking to the people, you came to me and said, let's send some men ahead of us to spy out the land so that they can tell us the best route to take and what kind of cities are there. That seemed a good thing to do, so I selected 12 men, one from each tribe. Was that God's idea? No. It was not God's idea. They went into the hill country as far as the valley of Eshcol and explored it. They brought us back some fruit they found there and reported that the land which the Lord our God was giving us was very fertile. From our good news Bible again. So who, uh, whose idea was it to send in the spies? People. The people. People's idea. And why did they suggest that? Sounded like a good idea. Sounded like a good idea? Really? Like a good idea. What they're really saying is, there's a big land up there, and we're a bunch of former slaves. Are we going to really be able to conquer this land? I mean, basically what's happened, they didn't trust God to do it for them. They said, these people are giants, and they have an army. We don't have anything but you, God. Yep. So... God would have fought the battles for them when some very important words in the book of uh, with some very important words in the book of Hebrews Paul addresses a group of new Christians and he's telling them it's about time to enter what? Heavenly Canaan How would you compare their situation in Paul's day with the children of Israel standing there looking at this unknown land in front of them Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. You know, the, the people of, of Paul's time were supposed to go into the heavenly Canaan. This is the comparison of the Israelites going into earthly Canaan and, 
and we're supposed to go into the heavenly Canaan. I once lived in a country uh, where I had to travel from that country to the neighboring country, and the two of the countries, the border was, quote, closed. And I know what it's like to go up there, and are you going to be able to get through? Are you going to be able? You need to go over there. You need to do some business over there. You need to come back. And it's not supposed to be open. I, I think I understand a little bit. I wasn't facing a military battle or anything like that. But anyway, he reminded these people of the experience of the Israelites exiting Egypt and also the conditions of the Gentiles living around them. So here they are trying to spread the Christian gospel, entering, in, if you will, uh, in a pagan society and... And people who, were, who would people who would kill them if they uh, didn't cooperate with their traditional religious beliefs. So, do you think Paul's letter would be appropriate for us today? How many of the things that Paul wrote in this letter are issues in our day? Any hints? Any ideas? We face. Yes, Gary. You got 38 seconds. Yes. But I'm just saying that many of us, how, 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 how comfortable are we going out and speaking to people on the street or people in, going to the neighbors and knocking on doors and, and telling them about, about Christianity and about Seventh-day Adventism and so forth? Do we have the same problem that these people had? I don't know. You, you're out there. Listen. See what you think. Uh, what's your situation in your town? I think that there's a lot of similarities between what their situation was and ours is today. Shall we pray? Our kind and wonderful Father, what a privilege it is to be welcomed by you, to be recognized by you, to be saved by you. Now help us as we study these things that we may draw nearer to you and become more like you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.